Airport security screening is in large measure a function of detection of objects, materials. A recurring challenge comes from non-commercial explosives, dangerous substances cooked up by criminals for unknown reasons. Before developing technology to detect these substances, the Transportation Security Laboratory, part of the Homeland Security Science and Technology Directorate, must reproduce them in a safe way. That's one of the jobs that falls to the Applied Research Division. In the fourth and final interview in our series, I spoke with the division's chemistry branch manager, John Brady. We spoke among a forest of boiling test tubes and burners at the lab in Atlantic City. So with the chemistry branch, we provide a lot of chemistry support services. And one aspect of that is to support the trace test and evaluation processes that go on. But we also perform chemical characterization, purity analysis, isotopic enrichment, There's a lot of different kind of chemistry-based services that we do provide internal and external customers. And all of that chemistry adds up to what in the mission itself of safety? When uh, Dr. Ben Wilkins is kind of producing an explosive in his laboratory, one, he'll kind of perform small-scale safety testing in his laboratory to make sure it can be handled appropriately. But then we also perform quality control on that material, which is typically in the form of kind of spectroscopic analysis or some sort of chemical analysis, like chromatography, uh, residual water analysis, residual solvent analysis, because you want to make sure that the material that we are making is what we intended to make, because if there is potentially an impurity there, it could be hazardous, which is not good if you're going to be handling that material in a test and evaluation event. And then two, We want to make sure that the material that is being provided to the vendors or being used in that test evaluation is repeatable and reproducible so it can be a fair evaluation. I guess the question beyond that is why would you make these things in the first place? There's a lot of different kind of threats that are out there. Some could be potentially military-based explosives. Some could be uh, commercial-based explosives. But there are some explosives that potentially could be utilized that don't have a kind of a commercial or a military use. And when that happens, they are not commercially available. So therefore, we have to make those materials ourselves. So being able to perform chemical analysis, safety testing is very critical for ourselves, but also then in the end to make sure that the product is safe and can be used in a fair and unbiased evaluation of the technologies. So you're trying to reproduce things that bad guys are manufacturing for whatever purposes they have that might come to an airplane. Potentially, yes, absolutely. All right. And to the extent you can, how do you know what people are making out there? Our customers were generally kind of give us an idea of what to look for, and they're going to have their own specific and unique requirements. And then we can then develop the, the test matrix or develop the materials or obtain the materials, whether commercially or in-house, to evaluate it. Other people, including TSA, the customer, and maybe other intelligence sources, know what is being developed out there in the wild and so that it comes to you to reproduce it for purposes of being able to see if it can be protected against. Yeah, our customers will have that information and will come to us, and we may not necessarily know the exact reason why. We don't necessarily need to know the exact reason why, but we know that it meets their requirements and their needs, so we're going to make sure that we know how to obtain it or make it so we can evaluate the technology based on those requirements. So you have to make it in a really responsible manner because you have people to protect right in the lab that are making it and also the vendors that will use it to test in their equipment and so on, unlike people that might be making it for a bad purpose. However they make it, wherever they make it, you do it in very controlled conditions, sounds like. Yes, we do it in controlled conditions to ensure our team members are are safe, any vendors or visitors that are coming into the laboratory safe, but we also want to try to do it in, say, as environmentally friendly way as possible because we always have to worry about waste streams and things like that too.
Right. So then what is the output? Like pounds of it, ounces of it, micro amounts of it, or what? It depends on what the customer's needs are and what that requirement is. So we can scale up or down depending upon what that system or technology is that will be evaluated. Some of these things, are they stable? I mean, what if it's unstable and you have to, say, get it into a vendor's hands? What are some of the ways you can move it from point A to point B so that it can be used safely for its intended purposes for testing and not for actually blowing up? That's a good question. Uh, we have actually have a, a scale-up process here at the laboratory. So if we're trying to uh, work with something that may be unstable, we actually determine first, is it stable or not stable? And we use small-scale safety testing, which uses a variety of different techniques, everything from impact, friction, electrostatic discharge, think, you know, like the, sh- the static shock, you know, if you touch the door. And we to kind of determine the various stimuli that it's sensitive to. Along that lines, we use thermal analysis to help kind of determine how stable material potentially could be, kind of just based on its thermal properties. And all this information is considered, and then we can develop processes on how to potentially mitigate a material or define timelines for how long a material could be potentially used for. So in that, it could be used in that safe manner for that defined time frame. After that time frame, we would then take it back and essentially destroy that material or salvate it so that it's no longer unstable, rendered safe, and we can always repeat this whole process and make more so that it can kind of restart that timeline again. And do you have a sense of how many of these things are out there in the wild? I mean, when it comes to commercial explosives, which are available commercially because they have purposes for moving mountains to make roads or whatever the case might be, then you know what's there. But for the inventiveness of terrorists, for example, are there tens, thousands, hundreds of types of explosives they're making? There's a lot of different types of varieties, and that's why we have our applied research division here at the laboratory to investigate the potential combinations that are out there, and provide that information to our customers. Do you ever come across something that you develop and make, reproduce, and say, this actually could have a commercial purpose? I don't think we have kind of looked at it in terms of that, whether it has a commercial application or not, but we will make those materials and provide that data to the customer for all the various properties that it has. And what are the skill sets and educational backgrounds required to do this kind of work? So we typically have a mix of physicists, engineers, and chemists that work here at the laboratory. And we have everyone from associate's degrees to PhDs that work here at the laboratory. Yeah, and so it sounds like you have a pretty dedicated bunch because industrial chemists can get big, fancy jobs at big, fancy corporations. Here they're working in an old warehouse. (laughs) That is correct. Uh, A lot of people care about the mission because you're able to come here and you're able to contribute, which is meaningful to me and meaningful to people to be able to kind of contribute to protecting the public and homeland security. So there's a lot of draw to be able to do that and do what we do. And just to be clear, when you develop something because you know this is being made out there and now you've reproduced it from your operation, then it becomes something to go to another operation to see if it can be detected, say, by spectroscopy for operational use at some point to test hey, what's in that bottle going through a screening line? Yeah, there's multiple avenues for the material. So if Dr. Welkins produces a material in his laboratory, that could potentially then be handed off to my laboratory for characterization. It could also be then passed off to Dr. Broderick's laboratory, where it could be formulated into some trace standards, which could be then passed along to our test and evaluation teams. 
or it could be passed kind of directly to our evaluation teams for analysis if they're looking at something more bulk versus trace. Yeah, so a trace means a very tiny amount can be detected, which could indicate there's more of it somewhere nearby. Yeah, trace is typically uh, we define as invisible to the naked eye. So it's looking for kind of small particles that you cannot typically see with your naked eye and is indicative of a potential interaction with the threat material of interest. Got it. And do these things take the form of liquids, gels, solids, gases? So typically the threats can be in any multitude of phases. Typically you will have solid phase, but you can also have liquid-based explosives. Now you can also detect explosives in the gas phase, but you don't necessarily have an explosive in the gas phase, but you can have explosions based on the flashpoint. You must be really consulted by the neighborhood for science experiments. Actually, uh, working with our kind of communication outreach department locally here at the TSL, they have uh, started to look at potential opportunities to work with universities and high schools and uh, grammar schools to try to get us out there in the field and do some STEM or STEAM type activities. Sure. So the kids that want to get away from baking soda and vinegar, they come to you. That's one potential option, yes. John Brady is Chemistry Branch Manager in the Applied Research Division of the Transportation Security Laboratory. Find this in all of our lab interviews at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Fly the Federal Drive wherever you go. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, visit specialolympics.org slash get dash involved. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned working with that community? Oh, uh, yeah, almost, uh, Shane, it's almost immeasurable. The things I've learned since I've been with Special Olympics. I um, One of the things that drew me to Special Olympics uh, when I made the move over from, from the NFL uh, was that my mother, my grandmother, my aunt all took care of, of people with intellectual disabilities and, and, and physical disabilities as well. So all of my life, I was uh, interacting and around um, usually usually young people, but also adults with disabilities. And so I, I knew that I knew that work a bit. You know, they they basically were in direct care. And, and I will say and on. I obviously will say about my my family, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints. Uh, but uh, the, the men and women that do take care of people with uh, profound disabilities are, are really, um, you know, we, we can't do enough to salute them. Um, they are, they're really heroes. And um, so I was, I was drawn when I, I, and I just saw that, you know, Special Olympics was looking for someone and I thought, well, you know, take a look at it and see, see you know, throw, uh, send in my information and lo and behold, I, I, I get hired and um, I learn uh, every day, almost something from, especially from our athletes. Uh, we're blessed to have a number of athletes that work here in our office in Washington, D.C., and, you know, uh, Terrell, who, who works in, in our mailroom and comes by with packages and deliveries, uh, if you're having a day that's, you know, 
getting away from you and you, you <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in, but Terrell comes by, always happy, always enthused, uh, has a has a good story. Like it can just turn a day around for you. And 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 you think of I I you know it's often when he'll walk away, I'll be like, you know, whatever was bothering me or whatever is you know stressing me out. And come on, you know, like look at look at Terrell. Like he he, he faces everything with optimism and 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 I've seen that also in our going to competitions in throughout the United States and globally. You see people who have had everything stacked against them. You know, their parents when they were born were often told this is a tragedy and you should you should you know send your this child away. Don't don't you know and kind of forget about them. Get, turn them over to the state or or wherever and and you know that you know just kind of wash, wash your hands of it. Um, and, and, and in, in these cases, the parents didn't do that, thankfully. Um, and, but they've still faced enormous challenges, you know, and, but you see them out competing on the basketball courts or the football fields or swimming and, uh, and, and, you know, besting their times from, from their last competition. And they're so committed and just keep fighting through all the obstacles that they've had in front of them that are not just on the sports field, but also in growing up and finding education and finding groups to be part of and trying to find jobs. And, and, and I've seen so much perseverance and grit uh, from a- the athletes of Special Olympics that uh, I, I, Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman, uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more, uh, we get more than we give. Uh, working with Special Olympics, it, you know, we, and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do, but but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere. That that you know, it's a, and it's so unique and it's so uh, joyful and and uh, yeah, I mean, we work hard and you know, we we're up against you know the things that nonprofits are up against and you know the you know the issues of the day but uh man you see it, it and 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 the inclusion and the at special olympics no one's excluded you know no, right. no one's excluded yeah. everyone is equal at special olympics it, and you know in a country that's quite divided on so many lines politically and uh, socially uh, economically race and uh, sexual orientation and whatnot but you go to special olympics and everyone's involved everyone's welcome everyone's equal and I've learned that it's a model for our country and for our world. Uh, I, I just think that that if if people were involved in Special Olympics and experience the power of Special Olympics for themselves, I I, I can't imagine that one help our country and help our world um, to experience that true inclusion and acceptance of difference. How, how do we get? How can listeners get involved in Special Olympics? Ways to get involved, uh, tons of ways. So uh, volunteers, obviously, coaches, officials. Uh, and, and the thing that, that, that uh, Tim Shriver has done uh, and really pushed in the years that he's been chairman is the unified sports model that, that I mentioned earlier, um, where people, and, and it doesn't have to be, uh, it's not just school age, it's, it's uh, you know, we say nine to 99 or uh, year old uh, folks uh, that play on teams, uh, bowl together, golf together, play soccer, basketball together, uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities competing on teams together. Um, and that is, I, I think when you, when you go back to the 
founding uh, of our organization, what Mrs. Tri- Mrs. Shriver was trying to do uh, was to to uh, create inclusion opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities. And you see it at these unified sports events where people with and without are playing together. We still have traditional uh, teams where it's all people with intellectual disabilities competing with other uh, teams, all intellectual disabilities. But this model of inclusive sports and inclusive leadership programs and whatnot, I think is truly revolutionizing and changing the way people see uh, others with intellectual disabilities. That's just like, I mean, that's what we, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together and bridge difference and, and, and celebrate differences and that our athletes, man, are some of the grittiest people that you will meet. And, and, uh, and there's a lot to learn from our athletes and playing sports with them and interacting is, is how you'll learn it. Check us out at, you know, uh, specialolympics.org on, on our website. Uh, it, that will link you to your local program. You can follow through the, the clicks of how to get involved and where, what's closest to you. You'll enjoy it. I can promise you that. Well, thank you very much, Sean. And, and to everybody listening, I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we'll, uh, Talk to you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.